Hey, we're going to uh, look at a number of different passages of Scripture. You might want to turn to Ecclesiastes 1, uh, and I'll give you a couple other places to turn as time goes by. And there's a Bible app event for this that makes it very easy for you to follow along if you would like to. And we're in the middle, actually still at the front edge. This is the third sermon in a series on counterfeits. And we're talking about things like counterfeit wisdom and counterfeit meaning in life and counterfeit morality, intimacy, security, counterfeit knowledge, counterfeit authority. And I want to be honest with you, as I'm writing these sermons and preparing these sermons, uh, I can see how I have been and continue to be vulnerable to these counterfeits. That these are things in my own life that sometimes I get confused about what's real and what isn't. And I think that we all do. And when I allow myself, I'll just tell you by way of my own story, when I allow myself to, for example, measure the value of my life by a counterfeit measuring stick or measure the meaning in my life by some device that is not real, that spells disaster for me emotionally, spiritually, and in other ways as well. And I would say that that's pretty common, that all these counterfeits resonate with us at different times in our life, at different seasons, some of them more often than not, but all of them to some extent. Now, the counterfeit we're going to be talking about today is the counterfeit of how we measure our life, how we measure its uh, meaning, how we measure its value. And the question is, what is it that gives your life value? What is it that gives your life meaning? And I would say to you, it's a universal kind of question. It's not the kind of question that people generally don't ask. It, it, in fact, there's whole schools of thought that are built on a question of what is the meaning of life? I can remember when I was at the university, one of my roommates, we had an apartment, we lived together our freshman year, townhouse apartment, there were five of us in there. And one of those uh, roommates uh, decided he was going to take a philosophy class as a freshman at the University of Pittsburgh. And he was gonna, wow, this will be great, you know, understand more about life and understand the meaning of life. And I would say to you that every one of us in that apartment knew that at the end of that semester, he knew less about the meaning of life than he did at the start of the semester. But he wanted to know about the meaning of life. He wanted to know what made life valuable. Is there any meaning to life? And it's a question that even the wisest of minds might ask. For example, Solomon is considered the wisest man who ever lived. The Bible says so. And if your Bibles are open to Ecclesiastes 1, you can see in the second verse of that text, Solomon himself says these words. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utter, meaningless, Everything is meaningless. What are you trying to tell me, Solomon? Could you be a little, little clearer on that? Yeah, I'm telling you that it appears that life does not have meaning, or at least I can't understand what is the meaning of life. What gives it value? Now, there's a show. It's on Netflix right now. It's a BBC production. Um, it's got that Cumberbund guy in it. What's his name? Benedict Cumberbund. Yes, just say that real loud so everyone can hear it. Yeah, that guy in it, right? And, and it's called Sherlock. How many have seen that, Sherlock? Yeah, a bunch of you, yeah. It's a really popular kind of show. It's uh, discontinued in 2017, but it was based on Sherlock Holmes. And if you know Sherlock Holmes, you know that Sir Arthur Conan, Conan Doyle uh, penned these mysteries where he had this brilliant detective, sharp in mind, knowledgeable in, in learning, and, and well-educated, just incredibly intelligent, and he could always solve the crime. But listen to what Doyle has this brilliant mind say in one of the less well-known works. Just listen as I read it. What is the meaning of it, Watson, said Holmes solemnly as he laid down the paper. 
What object is served by this circle of misery and violence and fear? It must tend to some end, or else the universe is ruled by chance, which is unthinkable. But what end? There is the great standing perennial problem to which human reason is as far from an answer as ever. So you get what Doyle has Sherlock Holmes asking. What gives life value? What is the meaning to life? It is a universal question, and it is an important kind of question. You know, when we were seniors in high school, I can remember a group of us sitting around at a buddy's house, and we were all sitting together there, and, and as our buddy was talking more and more, we began to realize that he was wondering why he was here, not in a good way. And he was thinking, I don't know what meaning life has. I, I don't know what value life has. And, and to say it maybe in a way that would be appropriate, he was kind of like Hamlet. To be or not to be. You understand what he's struggling with, right? Wow, so when you're dealing with a teenager and you are a teenager, how do you help him with that question? What do a bunch of teenage boys say to their buddy who's saying, I don't know if this is worth it? And as we were sitting there, we all began to speak almost instinctively about the value of his life and worked to convince him that his life has meaning and value. He just wasn't seeing it. Willis, your life has meaning. You must continue to be. Your life has value. Let me show you why I think that. And that was what he wanted. He went on to college, and then he went into ministry. I often wonder, though, what if he had decided his life had no meaning? What if he had decided his life has no value? Where would he be now? We'll never know. It's an important question, and it is a legitimate question. Sometimes, when someone asks those questions, a well-intended grandmother will say, oh, honey, you just think too much. No, you don't. (laughs) No, you don't. It is not just okay to ask the question, what is the meaning of life? It is essential to do so. I believe God wants us to ask these questions because if you don't ask the question, then you are likely blindly living your life accepting a counterfeit for the meaning because you'll live as though you understand the meaning of life, whether you've thought about it with any depth or not. And if you haven't thought about it with any depth, you might live your life under a counterfeit meaning. Now, I want to talk about three counterfeits that, that we commonly see as measuring six for life's value. And the first has to do with how productive you are. Some people find meaning in life by their productivity. And if you'd like, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. I'm going to have you turn your Bibles maybe two more times. You don't have to do it, but if you find that handy, that would be valuable to you. Some people value their life based on how productive they can be, how much they can accomplish. And granted, at the end of the day, when you've done a whole lot of things, you not only feel exhausted, but you feel pretty good about all the stuff you got done. Because productivity, it, it fulfills a need within us. But it's not a good measuring stick for how valuable your life is. Jesus kind of speaks about this issue of productivity in Luke chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading at verse 16, read about five verses. Of Jesus, this passage says, And he told them this parable, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, 
And there I will store my surplus grain, and I will say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You catch that last phrase. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? That's a question of meaning. Then, if your life is demanded of you after you've stored up all this grain in these barns, and then your life is demanded of you and you're dead, what meaning did all that productivity have? None. None. None at all. Indeed, there are a number of counterfeit meanings in this man's, uh, counterfeit rather, there are a number of counterfeits in this man's portfolio, but don't miss this one. He saw productivity as a stick by which he could measure his value. And productivity is kind of tricky because God designed us to take pleasure in our work. Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden to do what? To work the garden. Some people act like they feel like work is a result of the fall. My father thought that. I hate going to work. I have to do this because of Adam and Eve's sin. No, (laughs) the meaningless toil and grudgery of some of the work we do, that's a result of the fall. But work is not the result of the fall. And it's good to take pleasure in your work. Again, Solomon says in chapter two of Ecclesiastes, a person can do nothing better than eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God. So it's good to be pleased with that quilt that you finally finished. And it's good to be satisfied with that fish that you finally landed. And it's good to be happy with the canning that you were able to put up. And go ahead and take a picture of it and send it to all your friends. Look at the canning I put up. This feels good to be productive. It's good to feel good about the brake job you did on your automobile. But listen, do not measure the value and meaning of your life by how clean your kitchen is or how well your truck is running. Those are counterfeits. Productivity is a counterfeit when it comes to the meaning of life. Here's a second counterfeit. Finding meaning in experiences. We try this all the time. Road trips, conferences, concerts, Broadway show, hunting trip. My wife and I have an experience planned for this fall. We just bought our tickets. The biggest balloon show, hot air balloon event on the planet is held every fall in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We've been there once. We are going again. And I can't wait to be around those Mickey Mouse balloons, Dr. Seuss balloons. Then my life will have meaning. You see how ridiculous that is? Do you see how unbearably ridiculous that is? And yet, we often feel like if I could do the cool thing, how come Pastor Steve and Laurel get to go to that? My life has no meaning because I can't. If you feel that way, you're buying a counterfeit. (laughs) Jesus I'm sorry, James kind of speaks of the futility of basing our lives on all the things we're going to do when he says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city and spend a year there and carry on business and make money, why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Indeed, that is the case. If you're basing the value of your life on the things James is talking about. You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Does that remind you of a song? It does me from the 70s, back when music had melody. 
That's fun to say. I know it makes me seem really old, but it is fun to say. And some of you have heard it, Dust in the Wind by a band called Kansas. All we are is dust in the wind. Same old song, just a drop of water on an endless sea. All we do crumbles to the ground, though we refuse to see dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. When I was in high school, that was popular. When I was in high school, the author of that song, the writer of that song was Carrie Lisgren. I heard him on a Christian radio station because he was turning toward Jesus. And in that interview, Carrie Livgren is asked, how did you write that? Why did you write that? And he said words like these. I can't believe I wrote that song. I can't believe I felt that my life was that meaningless. But it was when I was not living for Jesus. And when you're not living for Jesus, what else would you write? Yeah. If you're basing the value of your life on the experiences that you have, then you're dust in the wind, or you will feel like you are. Here's a third counterfeit, pleasure. Some people try to find meaning in pleasure. Now, I like pleasure, and I think I'm supposed to like pleasure. The Bible says, speaking of God, it says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me, will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. In that respect, God is hedonistic in a good kind of way. Pleasures, eternal ones, at his right hand. I think I'm supposed to love pleasure. The pleasure of friendship. The pleasure of helping a friend shovel out a driveway. The pleasure of a good cup of coffee. The pleasure of a fire in a fireplace. The pleasure of teaching your children about Jesus. The pleasure of a beautiful home. The pleasure of a pinewood derby. I think I'm supposed to like all of those pleasures, but I am not made, nor are you made, we are not made for the express purpose of pursuing those pleasures. And if we make the pursuit of such pleasures, the goal, the objective, the means whereby we measure the value of our life, we will come away disappointed. Solomon did. He keeps coming up in this counterfeit thing because he was the kind of guy that bought a lot of counterfeits. You understand, we just finished on Wednesday night reading about the life of Solomon. You know this guy had five, no, 700 wives. 700 wives. And on top of that, 300 other women that he called concubines. I can tell you he probably had those for political reasons, but I can tell you as well, you can be sure he had them for pleasure. And he says this, speaking as though life were listening to him, he says to himself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. And that also proved to be meaningless. (laughs) You've seen it yourself, right? You've seen people who had all the money they needed and they could have all these pleasures and they they spent the money and, and enjoyed those pleasures. And then what happened? It came to a tragic end. Just watch any documentary of any rock musician and you see hints of that, if not blatant evidence thereof. None of these things are measuring sticks that are worthy of our use. So how do we measure genuine meaning? And I would say there are two essentials in this. The first one is this. You have to know who you are. If you want meaning in life, you're going to have to say, so who am I? Who am I? And second, 
You're going to have to know where you're called. You're going to have to say, okay, so what am I here for? Why am I here? Why do I exist? So let's take them one at a time. Who are you? Hi, my name's Steve. Oh, hi, Steve. Who are you? Uh, I'm the pastor. No, that's not who I am. That is what I am. It is what I do. Who I am is not what I do. And yet over and over again, we introduce ourselves by what we do. Hi, I'm Robbie. I'm the teacher at Clearfield. Hi, I'm Eric. I manage some buildings for the bank. Hi, I'm Autumn. I used to work at the bank, and I get to stay at home, and I love it. Those are great things, but those are all what we do. They are not who we are. And when we measure our value by what we do, that is a very kind of conditional measurement. People do that to one another all the time. God never does that to you. He never ties your value to what you do. He ties your value to who you are. And there's a huge distinction there. Think about a mother. (laughs) After I tell this illustration, moms will probably be mad at me and you'll know why I don't do Mother's Day sermons. Think about a good mom (laughs) would never do what I'm going to tell you this fictitious mom would do. Imagine for a minute that you would walk up to a mom and you would say, oh, there you have your baby, your infant baby in your arms. Why do you love that baby? Why does it have meaning? Why does that baby have value to you? A good mom would never say, well, this baby's valuable because it's really good at snuggling. It might be really good at snuggling, but if it wasn't, you wouldn't throw it out, right? Good mom would never say it's because of what it does. That's why I love it. A good mom would never say, well, this child has value because this child makes me feel fulfilled. Now, that child might bring a sense of fulfillment and completion into that mom's life. But if that's the reason she values it, what about those times at three in the morning when I'm not feeling very fulfilled to have this baby in my home? No. A good mom does not base the value of the baby on the baby's performance. Why do you value that mom? I'm sorry, why do you value that child? A good mom would never say, well, because it makes all the other moms jealous of me. (laughs) What would that be, right? You get it. A good mom values that child simply because, and if she would put the words together, she might even say it like this, I don't value this child because of what this child does. I value this child because this child is mine. This child is mine. And that's why I value this child. You know where a good mother gets that sense? From God. Because he values you because of who you are, not what you do. You might want to turn to Matthew 6. We're going to read from there in a couple minutes. The Bible teaches that you are God's and you're created in the image of God. Everybody knows that. We've all read the passage in Genesis 127 where it says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We understand that. As human beings, we're made in the image of God. We're a reflection of him. We are a vehicle through which he, the invisible God, can actually be glimpsed. Now, I want to get theological with you for just a moment. I want to talk to you about a biblical scholar named David Kleins, who who looked at Genesis 127, which says, God created mankind in his image, And Klein said this, 
He said, I'm a Hebrew scholar. He is a Hebrew scholar. He didn't, he didn't want to show it off. He, he was a Hebrew scholar. And he said, Genesis 1.27 could be rendered to say, you are created as God's image. In God's image, as God's image. And he went on to say this. Thus, we may say that according to Genesis 1, man does not have the image of God, nor is man made in the image of God, but is himself the image of God. And that's an important distinction. McLean isn't saying that you are God. He's not a heretic. He's saying the image of God is something that you are made to demonstrate, that you do demonstrate just by being. You represent the image of God. You are the image of God just by being. You display God just by being. You say it like this. Humankind is the formal, visible, and understandable representation of who God is and what he's really like. And that's why when humans do evil, it's really evil. Because you're made never to do evil. You're made to represent the holy, majestic, pure, righteous, gracious, loving, just, wise God. You are the representation of him. And that fact that you're created as God's image should pour meaning and value into your soul. It should fill it completely. Matthew 6, starting at verse 25, Jesus speaks of this in very practical ways. It's a passage about worry. He's talking in the Sermon on the Mount, and and he says this in verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life, human life, your life. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you much more valuable than they? If you don't know the answer to that, the answer is you are. You are more valuable than they. You are made in the image of God. You are made as the image of God. And that gives your life value and meaning. And if you want to find real meaning in your life, then you're going to have to know who you are. I want to talk more about this. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to read there in a minute. That's the last time I'll ask you to change your page. It's Ephesians 4. If you're trusting in Christ, you have been graciously redeemed by your Creator. And that increases the meaning and value you should see in your life. You're kind of like an old Indian motorcycle that's just been sitting around for ages and neglected. And when somebody walks by and looks at that motorcycle, they say there's really no value to that. And there is no value in it if it's going to remain there in that condition. But when someone else comes along and picks that motorcycle up and takes it home and breathes new life into it, it becomes very difficult to measure the value of that Indian motorcycle. That is the way you are. Your life has meaning because the creator of the cosmos offers you redemption. He picks you up, he takes you home, and he breathes new life into you. And that gives you meaning. And that gives you purpose. That gives you value. When you open your heart to Christ, turning from your sin and trusting him, you're transformed and you're inhabited by the Spirit of God. I'm not going to comment on Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read about eight verses here. I'd like you just to follow along and hear what it says. Ephesians 4, starting at verse 17. Listen as I read this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. 
They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on your new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. (laughs) Do you hear that? When you turn your heart to Christ, you put off the old worthless self, and you put on a new self, a new life. When I was uh, just in college, had a pastor named Pastor Les. Um, pastor Les was involved in our wedding, Laurel's in my wedding. And Pastor Les, one Sunday evening, I don't know if Laurel was there or not, but he was up and he was preaching, and you know, he was right out of school, and he didn't have much money, and the church couldn't afford him to pay him much money, and I happened to notice he had a big tear in the back of his coat, you know, right here where the arm attaches, he had a big tear there. And as he was preaching, he kept, you know, turning around, and you could see that over and over again. And then he was preaching on this passage, and he said, have you noticed that my old coat is tattered and torn? Let me just take this off. And he took it off, and he laid it down, and he went to a place on a platform that we didn't see, and he put on a new coat. And then he taught us a song. Do you remember that song, Laurel? Well, the best thing in my life I ever did do. Oh, the best thing in my life I ever did do. The best thing in my life I ever did do was to take off the old coat and put on the new. For the old coat was tattered and dirty and worn. No, torn. The old coat was tattered and dirty and torn. The new coat was clean and had never been worn. The best thing in my life I ever did do was to take off the old coat and put on a new. Do you know why? Because when you put on a new coat, it adds meaning and value to your life. It gives meaning and value to your life. What's the meaning of life? What is their value in life? (laughs) You are, you are transformed and inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. He's given you a new coat. It's a beautiful meaning if you think about it. And that's a beautiful purpose. If you want to see meaning and purpose in your life, you need to know who you are. And second, if you want to see meaning and purpose in your life, you have to know where you're called or what, you call, what you're called to do. You have to understand there are certain things in this world that God has for you to do, and you are just the right person to do them. You are called to glorify your creator. That is the most basic thing you're called to do because you were created as the image of God. So be the image of God. Glorify him. You ever have a job that you really loved? You loved going to work. You loved the guy you worked for. You loved the business and what it did for the community. You loved everything about it. Remember how if you have that kind of job, you probably, when you get up in the morning, you comb your hair, you brush your teeth, you make sure your whiskers are all gone. You put on a pretty good coat, maybe some of your better clothes. The right clothes are what you put on. And the reason you do that is because you love your job and you want to show honor to your employer. You want to represent that business well. You're bringing glory to that business. That's what you're called to do for Jesus. And it's not a matter of the clothing you wear, you understand. It's a matter of the way you live. If you love your creator, then you want to bring him glory by being the best that you can be and putting your best foot forward and showing as the image of God who he is, one who loves, one who is merciful, one who is compassionate, 
one who is honest, one who walks with integrity, one who has justice, one who, who, has, who has a sense of right and wrong and holiness and grace. Whatever you do, the scripture says, whether you eat or drink, do it all to glorify God, to show what he looks like. And as you do this, as you glorify God, you will find that you enjoy him all the more. Now, the graphic that's on the screen is a picture of a book that was made several years ago, like over 300 years ago, by a group of Scottish theologians and laymen. It wasn't just the theologians that put this together. The laymen worked on it too. They created what they called a catechism. It was a teaching tool to teach their children the truth of Christ, the truth of the gospel. Their catechism went like this. It was a question, and then the child or the, or, or the, the person learning, it wasn't just for children, it was for adults as well, gave the answer. And then question number two, and then the answer. And question number three, and then the answer. I've told you this before, when my kids were like 16 and 14, we did this at the kitchen table, we did this catechism, I thought it was going to kill them. They hated it, both of them. Oh, not the catechism. Don't make us do that, Dad. Can't we do other devotions? This is awful. But then when Esther went to Houghton and she was taking religious classes there, she said, Dad, you're not going to believe how many kids never even heard of this catechism. They're so stupid. (laughs) She probably didn't use the word stupid because she's more refined than I, right? It's always good as a parent, you know, when they come back and say, you were right. It's rare, but it's good, right? Yeah. So this catechism that I force my children to go through, I only know one question and one answer from it. I don't know any of the other, it's, there's a lot of questions. I don't even know how many there are. I don't remember, but I remember this one. Everyone who speaks of the Westminster Shorter Catechism remembers question number one. What is the chief end of man? Now understand that. I, I say this a lot, but you've got to understand it's so important. What is the chief, that means the number one, the a priority, the get this right if you don't get anything else right. What is the number one end? That means purpose, reason for being, the meaning of a human life. What is the main purpose of man, of humankind? What is it? What is the chief end of man? Anyone know? Yeah, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Know who you are. Know where you're called. Well, I don't know, Pastor Steve, how do I, I don't know how I enjoy God. How in the world am I supposed to enjoy God? Can I give you a couple suggestions? It's not rocket science. Just find pleasure in the gift he gives you and constantly acknowledge that it came from him. You got that? Jeff Spade, he's an elder at this church. He amazes me with his everyday wisdom all the time. He gets up in the morning at an ungodly hour to make sure you have water for your shower in the morning. And he goes to work. He works for the water company in town. As he's driving along, a little sparrow flies across in front of him. And Jeff says these words. He's told me this. I believe him. He's told me multiple times. I see that sparrow and I go, oh, that's pretty. Thank you, God, for sending that sparrow across my path today. He's he's enjoying God when he does that. Sparrows, family, friendships, your church, a sunrise. When you enjoy these things and you don't remember that they are gifts from God, then you begin to question the meaning and the value of your life. But when you intentionally enjoy these things as having been given you by God, 
then you're enjoying God and your life has meaning. You're a little bit like Asaph who wrote when he was questioning the wisdom of God. At the end, he says, who do I have in heaven but you, God? And earth has nothing that I desire apart from you besides you. I find pleasure and enjoyment in you, God, and everything you give me. What gives your life meaning? Knowing who you are and knowing where you're called, what you're called to do, and doing it. Something happens to me unregularly in my life. In fact, in these 57 years that I've lived, it's maybe happened half a dozen times. When it happens, I'm flabbergasted by it. You understand? Anyone say something, you're like, I can't believe they said that. And when it happens, it makes me cry these tears of, of happiness, joy. It's when someone comes up to me, and by the way, as I'm telling this, don't start doing this because you'll rob, you'll rob all the joy out of it probably, right? It's when someone comes up to me and says, hey, Steve, I see Christ in you. My district superintendent said it several years ago. Steve, I see the transforming power of Christ in you. And when I look at you, I see Jesus. Where does that come from? How does that even happen? Steve, Jesus' love is evident to me because of what you were in that situation. When I hear that, I want to cry. I am flabbergasted that that occurs because when I hear that, I know that I am being who God called me to be. And I know that I am doing that which God has called me to do. And my life has meaning on a whole different level. You don't have to be a pastor <laughs> to have that kind of experience. In fact, I want to warn you, as I did the first service this morning, that if no one ever says that in your life, that's okay. Because a dangerous thing for us to do would be to say, my meaning in life comes from when someone tells me that I showed them Jesus. Right? My meaning in life doesn't come from the words of human beings. My meaning in life comes from the authoritative word of God who says, you are my image. And I want you to glorify me and enjoy me forever. That's where my meaning comes from. That's where our meaning comes from. That's where our value is rooted. And I want to pray that that would be, that that would be real in all our hearts today. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand and we'll pray together. Now, before we pray, I really want you to think about what gives your life meaning. I want you to just go back in your mind to some of the counterfeits we spoke about a few moments ago. Pleasure, experiences, whatever, you know. I don't know, did I happen to tell you that I'm a grandpa? Wow, there's one, right? <laughs> it gives meaning to life, right? And it's okay to be pleased about those things, but if I were to build my life on that, that's a problem. How about you? Are there counterfeits that you have allowed to substitute for the powerful reality of who you are? And so I want to pray that you would set them aside and that the truth of what has been proclaimed today would sink into your life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this truth from your word. I thank you that we are created as the image of God. Wow. 
What a huge responsibility. And there are times, frankly, that I don't want that because I know I mess up. And yet, without that, my life has no meaning. And so we as individuals, collectively together, say to you, thank you for making us as your image, as your likeness. I pray that that reality would sink into our lives in such a way that we would never question whether our lives have meaning or value. And that we would choose to glorify you and enjoy you forever. And that we would recognize there are certain things in this world you have for us to do. And we are just the right individuals to do them. And we would walk forward enjoying doing those things for your honor and glory. Make it so, for it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.